Hello, welcome back to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. I'm Stephen McGregor. This is episode 27 now. What office will we go back to? With Dr Whitney Gray of the International Wellbuilding Institute. So this is the start of the Q2 focus that we have in the podcast. You may have caught Q1's focus, which is well-being in professional services. And we have in the next three episodes, well-being in the built environment, which within the whole context of COVID-19, I think is a very interesting and appropriate theme to look at. There's many questions that we have as we begin to de-escalate around the world and think about going back to the office or not, as the case may be. So I hope you're well, I hope you're keeping safe and um, I hope you're finding some of the answers for moving towards the next normal and, and how we create and design that ourselves. Um, you know, make no mistake, we have some dramatic shifts ahead of us and hopefully for the better, you know, this is episode 27 now and for the last few years I've spoken about a more positive vision of work and how work fits within life and I hope that however serious this crisis is then in the end uh, we will get to to more of that that positive picture and positive notion and I think you know we all have that responsibility to to redesign what we want that that next normal to be so it is a challenging time but it's also an exciting time right uh, here in Barcelona, we are now in de-escalation. Uh, this is the ninth week in the state of alarm. Just in the past 10 days, uh, I've been able to go out and exercise, which, you know, policy-wise, I mean, nothing is perfect, right? But the Spanish government decided that you can exercise between the hours of 6 and 10 a.m. and uh, 8 and 11 p.m., but what you find in certain parts of the city, it's like rush hour, right? It's like Oxford Street, London, or Fifth Avenue. <laughs> it's, it's kind of stressful. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to find the, the right balance there and and, uh, and still, you know, keep safe distance from people and still enjoying getting back to running, with running being such an important part of my life. And, and it's interesting, right? Because in a way, this is the highly ambiguous stage you know I just I did some sessions this morning for Salesforce uh, leaders in, in the Nordics region on positive leadership and, and we talked on some of the issues like ambiguity and you know since the the ending of the of the strict lockdown in a way it's 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 tougher right you know before you had at least in Spain and, and speaking from personal experience it was very much black and white. It was very clear cut, right? You, you couldn't go out of the house and, you know, you had to have a good reason for doing so. And, you know, it was clear what you had to do and what was being asked of you. It wasn't necessarily pleasant, but you dealt with that. But now in de-escalation, you're having much more ambiguity and, and that is sometimes hard to, to process also. So de-escalation as that begins across Europe, certainly, um, and the wider world, then there is a lot, a different type of uncertainty compared to the initial stages of the lockdown. And even if you covered the address from Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, uh, there's a lot of criticism for that address in terms of that de-escalation uh, because of the mixed messages and because of the high degree of ambiguity that, that, that he gave, right? And even notwithstanding, it just applied to England and then it was 
you know, Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister in Scotland, giving, giving different messages, right? So this de-escalation stage is, is another challenge, I think, for us all. Uh, and for us here professionally in Barcelona is, you know, looking ahead to this next set of engagements with, with business. You know, I, I'm very grateful and very fortunate to have been very busy the last six weeks in what area I think was the kind of crisis response. So looking at kind of mindset and resilience and also a little bit of behavioral reset and looking at habits. Uh, but we did a number of programs uh, with Arla Foods, which was a lot of fun company-wide with Klaus Fensborg. I think I mentioned this actually in the last episode, um, but also McKinsey. We did a number of uh, virtual journeys with, with McKinsey and, and moving from that crisis response into behavioral change. And, and again, that was across the region, Middle East and also Europe. And that was a lot of fun. And then we also partnered with Headspring Executive Development to to work with the leadership uh, in HR in NN, Netherlands, the, the financial services group, um, and, and a few others in the mix also in the past six weeks. So that was a lot of fun, and I learned a lot also just in terms of even virtual delivery, right? And I, and I think a lot of the assumptions that we're challenging now in this next normal, and even some of the replies that I got from Salesforce leaders this morning in terms of, yes, we, we can work from home and it can work, and, and I'm sure we'll go back to having an office. So this, you know, episode with Whitney, we're going to talk about even challenges about if, what if people don't want to go back to the office. I'm sure we'll be very happy to go back, but it will change. The dynamic will change and there'll be much more things that we do at home. There'll be much more flexibility and all these kind of different things. Final couple of things on couple of things coming up. I'm looking forward to being part of the Recovery Summit, which is a a week-long uh, free uh, summit online. Uh, you can go to the rec- therecoverysummit.com and there's a there's a great lineup in there, so I'm very privileged to be part of that. You've got Sebastian Coe, Joseph Stieglitz, and you've got different other uh, academics and leading leading thinkers within that, uh, and that's from the 15th to the 19th of, of June, and you can sign up now. The, the site just went live today, um, and I'm hoping also to do something with Rory Simpson, my friend and co-author on the Chief Wellbeing Officer book. You know, we've both been very busy the last couple of months. He's been delivering a lot of the leading self program in Telefonica. Uh, and I guess also from his point of view, you know, recognising the power of virtual delivery. You know, 10,000 people used to go through Universitas, the, the, the building, right? Uh, the corporate university for Telefonica north of Barcelona. And I did a lot of teaching there over the years. Um, but now in the past month, he's taught maybe four or 5,000 people online. So I, I think just showing the great potential and, and the pivot that those guys in HR and Telefonica have done. Um, and we're hoping to join forces on a programme that we can bring to the market. You know, we tried to launch something in Soho Little Beach House on the coast in Barcelona uh, earlier this year, which of course, for different reasons, didn't quite work. Uh, but maybe we'll get to do something online that will be open and powerful, given that most of what we do is is custom designed and, and, and closed for, for specific clients. So hopefully we'll get to doing something there. Okay, looking at this, um, that's enough about kind of catch up. Um, looking at the episode with Whitney, I learned a lot. I learned so much in my discussion with her. She was over in New York, at home in New York. She has a PhD in public health. 
and is a senior vice president in the International Well Building Institute. I've been looking at the well certification for a couple of years now, just interested in this whole aspect of having a standard for healthy buildings. And as it's prefaced within that standard, recognising that as human beings, we spend 90% of our time indoors within four walls, right? And I'm sure that has gone up for many of us, even approaching 100% in the last couple of months of, of COVID-19. Um, but we talked about many things, right? Not just the certification, but just when we go back to the office, what's it going to look like? Uh, and what are some of the considerations that employers need to look at? And I think a very interesting theme was that of emotions. And, and a lot of my work in the last few months is looking at, you know, within even positive leadership, but recognising more holistic approach to work where well-being and health has a real place, that emotions are a big part of that, right? You don't just leave or check yourself at the door and you have this professional persona. And we talked a lot about the psychological effects, even when legislation says you can go back to these places, whether it be your company or the coffee shop or whatever it may be, right? A lot of fear will be left behind. And especially with our employers, there needs to be that degree of trust, right? There has to be that trust that they've done the things that they need to do to minimise risk of contagion and different things like that. So we had a very rich discussion, right? It went beyond, you know, we're going to go back to an office full of perspex and and I'm sure a lot of the trends that we did see in even co-working spaces and a lot of the richness of interaction, sharing ideas in the last few years will be pressurised, at least in, in the short term. Um, but she, for instance, talked about the 10% and all of the different 10% uh, areas that employers need to look at. She talked about the power of design. Uh, and I think that's very interesting. Uh, you know, designers and architects will be playing a big role in designing this next normal for us all in terms of life and work. Um, we looked at other issues around empowerment and, and flexibility and more of a diverse workforce. So in many ways, a lot of our discussion was very much in line with the accelerated futures that I think COVID-19 is, is, is bringing to bear, right? Um, and I think... One of the takeaways from this conversation is about how we can all, on an individual level, embrace the greater degree of empowerment that this crisis will give us. Um, so I think we can take a lot of the discussion, even though a lot of it is, is serious and rooted in, in health risk, we can take it on a very uh, positive level. Okay, um, So that's all for me. I hope you enjoy this discussion, we'll be back with the other two episodes within this theme of well-being in the built environment before the end of the second quarter, before the 30th of June. So I may be back in the next two to three weeks, uh, time permitting. But as ever, keep well and, of course, keep safe. Bye for now. Ciao, ciao. So hello, Whitney. Welcome to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. Thanks for having me. So the office that we will go back to will be very different from the office that we left behind. Uh, I guess this has been taking up some of your own thinking the past few weeks, right? Have you got any initial reflections on that? Absolutely. We are in the largest modern day experiment of work from home. And many of us still are in offices that are the relic of the 1950s. 
of the nine to five lifestyle. And as tragic as this pandemic is, uh, there are also opportunities to rethink that maybe the nine to five doesn't work for everyone. And maybe sitting in a, uh, what I like to call the beige on beige on beige cubicle with the beige carpet, with the beige partition, uh, doesn't work either for our health. And so although many of us are still reacting to this, uh, there is an opportunity to be proactive and rethink about the environments we're returning to. Those four walls, which we constitute as work, are going to change in the future as people are asking themselves, how do I work best? And maybe those four walls can be uh, limiting. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, the, the, the social experiment part is absolutely fascinating and in many ways, we're accelerating futures, you know, a lot of different things that may have happened eventually at a stroke. We're transporting ourselves, you know, 10, 20, 30 years or more into the future. So as you say, you know, a lot of the, the, the kind of real estate or office design was stuck in the 1950s. So in many ways for you in well, rather than this being a threat for you in terms of maybe a threat to real estate and office space around the world, it is actually an opportunity, right? I, I believe so. I think that this is going to harness people's focus into their health. And so it will also harness our focus in that one size doesn't fit all. And a lot of us have been pushed into that one size fits all 1950s model. Uh, there are some real opportunities for us to rethink about that. So, for example, there is a population of people that are disabled that previously the focus was perhaps they could not get to work or the commute or the setup ergonomically was not capable of them being able to be in that space. That conversation is changing. They can now work from home, and that might reduce a lot of those pressures um, and enable us to work with those that maybe have been previously um, not sort of as welcomed in the workplace in one way or the other. I think there's an incredible population of those that are neurodiverse. There's been some wonderful work by Kay Sargent and HOK specifically to look at this issue that a lot of us come to the workplace with very diverse needs in the sense of how do we manage stimuli and sensory response. So this is going to speak to people maybe on the spectrum of autism, as well as those that just deal with mental health um, issues, maybe around anxiety, for example. And so these environments where they have to commute for an hour and overstimulated and um, we are constantly interrupted uh, on average about every three minutes in workplaces. And it takes about 11 to 25 minutes to return to focus. So those that are dealing with neurodiverse issues, that can even be, um, you know, really multiplied for them. So, okay, now they're working from home. And they can manage some of those stressors differently. They can choose their hours maybe a little differently. They can choose how to interact. How are those populations going to be addressed? And then, of course, we're looking at vulnerable populations. So those that may have comorbidities, so it's going to be your obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, they're at increased risk now. Um, not to mention some of the populations that, for example, have someone at home, a loved one that's dealing with the illness, there may be those that are immunocompromised that are stage two, stage three cancer. 
um, not to mention pregnant women. There's a really diverse population out there that has very unique needs. And I think the idea of the workplace is going to be one size fits all and that everyone's going to return to work and be in their beige on beige on beige cubicle because that's the way we used to do it. I would argue that's agreement reality. It's a reality we agreed to in the past. I don't think we're going to agree to it in the future. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating. And it paints um, such a positive future of the the workplace, right? And, and, and as you're saying in these comments, you know, we catered for work um, and a lot of people weren't well at work because their specific needs weren't catered for. But what this has done, it's thrown us into really opening our eyes into what does each person need, right? And it goes beyond just the fact of, um, you, know, you know, are you an introvert or extrovert or do you like coming into the office and indulging in office banter or, you know, what, what is it you like about working from home compared to the office? But you get such more, much more of a nuanced picture on, on the needs that we can cater for. And I think when we cater for those specific needs, then that's when we create those flexible spaces we create those spaces that really optimize people's well-being. Um, can we do it though? You know, all all of that diversity that you're just talking to us about—that's quite ambitious to to cater for all of that, right? How how do we get there? Well, I think we're doing it right now, right? So people are now working from home. They're having to modulate their own schedule. Employers are, I think, some of the best employers are not just sensitive to those needs, but are also in many ways looking at this as a huge opportunity to reach out to their employees and ask them what they need. Uh, this means surveying. This means open discourse. A lot of employees don't want to be told when they return to work or told how they work. They want to be asked, how do you work best? They want to be involved in the process because during a time of anxiety and overwhelm, um, Controlling what we can is a very potent component of stress management. And so allowing workers to choose some alternatives, which may mean to balance their work schedule a little differently, um, is really empowering. So, you know, if there's 100 variables out there and we can manage 90 and you can convey that powerfully to your employees and then allow them to choose and control what they can, then that allows you to involve them in a process. Many people are talking about COVID like it's going to go away in a month or two. As a research scientist in public health, it's not going away. This is fundamentally going to shift our way of thinking. And if it doesn't, it should. Um, because we're probably in this for the long game. When people talk about uh, flattening a curve, that's not saying it's going away. That's just allowing us more time to prepare for this, whether that's the healthcare system or that's dealing with you know, vaccines and testing. And so this is really going to make us look at infectious disease in ways that many people in this generation have no institutional memory of. These were the days of polio that our parents or grandparents dealt with. Um, mm. These were things, mumps, measles, right, that people don't see the same way. And so our modern office spaces were dealing with chronic diseases. And I think too often uh, when it comes to victim or when it comes to chronic diseases is that a lot of our professionals in the workplace did a lot of victim blaming, which means, you know, it's not, it's not my fault that you have that disease, right? You were a smoker. You didn't eat well. You don't take care of your health. Um, but actually a lot of those behaviors are contagious as well, but not in the same way that infectious disease is contagious. And so this is going to shuffle our understanding of how we trust people and trust places and trust employers 
We're moving from chronic disease to infectious disease. Modern workplaces were not designed for infectious disease in the same way. Yeah, no, there's, there's some great comments in there, Whitney. Thank you. I mean, the power is in the co-design there, as you, thought, you talked about at the beginning, right? We're, we're going to co-design, ideally, um, the spaces that we work in in the future. And a lot of that, as you said, is empowering the workforce. And this, of course, aligns well with new positive notions of work and positive leadership, that people are actually empowered to, to make more decisions about how best they work. And they're not just following instructions or just working in a space that has been designed for them, right? Um, you touched on something also in terms of emotions, and I think a big part of, um, you know, the, the new world of work is actually bringing our emotions to work, that we don't just have this persona in the home, uh, and then we have this professional persona, but we're the same person in both places. And I think this massive social experiment that COVID-19 has has thrust upon us all has opened up these emotions and, and, and allowed our co-workers to really see us as we really are, right? So whether that's a kid or a dog uh, running into the picture when we're in a meeting or, you know, we're just sitting in different dress, but still, of course, trying to remain professional... I think maybe, you know, there's a lot of that professional facade that is that is dropped from a lot of people. So in terms of emotions, and, and this is something that I think is very interesting, is the psychological effects that will remain after any legislation says, hey, you can get back to life as normal, more or less, right? Um, so there's a big element of fear that will remain for a lot of people. Um, and a lot of work that you're doing is actually trying to bring uh, trust into the built environment, right? Can, can you talk a little bit more about emotions and how we can design for emotions within the built environment? Yes, so that was a lot of powerful concepts. And I would agree that the notion that work is professional and not personal will shift. The more that employers understand that that is now a blurry line and that if they don't understand the personal dynamic that their employees are dealing with, that they can't be the highest level professional and that they cannot turn off. And whereas before we used the four walls of the office and the commute home and said, that's when you turn off. And that's the difference between professional and personal. Those lines are blurred now as well. So you are in a home environment, and to your point, is that you are professionally engaging during the day in your work while personally dealing with small children and loved ones that may be sick. Uh, you are managing multiple stressors, uh, not to mention the pets, uh, right? So this just got real personal. And people are now, whereas years ago, saying and chiding those that had a, a Zoom meeting in which someone in the background came on like their small child, they're now celebrating it because they feel like they have a window into how this person is managing. And so I think where you saw the, uh, the personal being a vulnerability in the workplace, you may see that now as being a strength where employers understand who is managing two small kids and what is happening with this person's loved one. And the more they're tracking it, the more likely they are to also be able to engage with that worker as to when they come back, how they come back and build trust. And so employees, there are stats out there that say millennials will change jobs 11 times. Well, now in particular, if you don't have to move somewhere to change jobs, what an interesting time to deeply think about how invested you are with your company. 
And are there other companies that care more about you? So this is the world of human capital. We do a lot with ESG, environmental social governance. This is a non-financial that's used largely as we invest in large-scale companies to say, beyond your you know, financial metrics, your P&E, how are you treating your people? Who's on your governance council? How are you treating the environment? I need to see what you're doing in order to invest in your company because these are vulnerabilities. Whether, you know, and this is the world of looking at when with Uber and what happens when a company comes public and how do we better understand, you know, what are they doing to invest in their employees? Um, we work very closely actually with Uber. It's an exciting account in which they're saying, we are investing in people and we're going to show you how we're investing in people. I bring this up because it's all related to this idea that that people want to feel connected to their employer. They want to show, they want to understand that that you invest not just in their work, but who they are, because this is linked to how long they stay with the company, how well they perform. And I think in particular, you are seeing some significant vulnerabilities with companies that only assumed that they could touch the professional or just push people for productivity and not actually invest in their resiliency and invest in how are they managing all these different dynamics in their personal life. And so that's a real component of human health we don't always look at, right? You come to the workplace, don't be sick. Perform at your highest level. Be productive. But now we're saying, wait a minute, what about your mental health? What about your resiliency? How are you going to manage when these extreme stressors happen? How engaged are you? How involved are you? How committed and how trusting are you of this organization? And I think we'll see this only emerge more. Uh, yeah, and, and I think a lot of what you're talking about it aligns with more modern definitions of health, uh, of being more than just the absence of sickness. And I think well-being and well-being at work still has a way to go on that journey to have more of that positive um, conception rather than just uh, measuring absenteeism, for example, right, or measuring sickness within the workplace. And I think, you know, something that, like this crisis is going to accelerate that journey. Is there an element of fear um, or vulnerability uh, on your side as well with some of the things that may happen in this future? I mean, when you get executives like Jess Staley from Barclays, he said the notion of putting 7,000 people in a building may be a thing of the past. And I think a lot of big companies are actually looking at, you know, do we need to invest in as much in office space? Will the market be potentially smaller for something like well? Or is there any fear for, for you in that side of things? I think, you know, we work on all building typologies. We work in commercial, we work in multifamily, we work in education, um, we work in healthcare and senior housing. So if you spend 90% of your time indoors, you're spending it in an indoor environment and we work across all those different indoor environments. What's going to happen in senior housing versus commercial is going to be different. And the business case is going to be different. Um, I think you're going to see some very interesting and novel models, you know, start to emerge around new arrangements in skyscrapers, you know, team A, team B, how do people phase in, phase out? Um, but I think what happens with a lot of these business case models, and it's where I spend a lot of my time as a researcher, is you still assume the same variables in your model, but you want a different outcome. And you are going to have to change these variables up. So this idea of, of six feet and social or physical distancing from a perspective of public health, 
we look at the hierarchy of controls when we're trying to assess a hazard. And personal protective equipment is one of the last resorts we have. This was still used in 1918 in the Spanish flu. So we're trying to understand better ways to eliminate the source, administrative controls, engineering controls, right? Design out the problem. If we're relying only on human behavior, that can be faulty. And so when you're hearing messages around you know, social distancing, it's critical. We have to pay attention to this, but also keep in mind that's one of our last resorts. So we have to be thinking about this as an integrated solution across the board, right? And not assume that that's alone going to be a fix for this. People will be integrating into their lifestyles in new ways, and they're going to demand more from the environments in which they spend time in. And those are some pretty powerful new variables. And I think we'll see some incredible models emerge. I mean, when we look at the recession, uh, co-working was one of the outcomes of that. So we saw designers take on this idea that people were now out of work. They um, leases were let, you know, were went down in cost. The duration of the lease went down. Now all of a sudden you had available office space. You had individuals that wanted to get out of the home that may have lost a job or wanted to start up, you know, something new, and they could interact and be part of a community in returning to the world of WeWork. And co-working emerged. And co-working is going to take a big hit inside of all this, most likely, as people are reevaluating. Do they feel safe to be in a community of strangers and return to work? I think we're going to see some incredible innovation come out of that, too, as people rethink about these spaces that they're spending time in. So, you know, the model and business case for the spaces that we spend time in, whether that's, like I said, you know, multifamily residential units, whether that's going to look at senior housing or commercial, is going to change. I, I would recommend we use some new variables to assess what that change is going to be and not try to use the same old ones like the nine to five scenario. If you have a skyscraper that has tens of thousands of people, and some of them in the world do, the idea that it's going to take a little longer for people to get there if you assume a nine to five scenario, I mean, of course, you could be looking at hours to get people in the building if you use the same variables of assuming people will work the same way. People, I hope, don't. I hope we really evaluate that there's different models of work and there's different models of movement. Um, and keep in mind, too, you know, this is going to be a long-term adaption. So this is not going to be something we just take care of immediately. This is going to be part of how we adapt these business models moving forward. Um, so like I said, I, I do believe that there's opportunity. Are there vulnerabilities? Absolutely. Um, and I think those that are living in a space of thinking that things are going to be the same, or even this idea of new normal, like, I mean, that's kind of a fascinating concept, right? It still says, I want normal. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe we just need to think about the future mm. um, in a new way, right? So maybe it's just the new future. Yeah, yeah. No, fascinating. And, and, and what that future will look like really is, is fascinating. And just when you were talking there about, um, of course, many companies being in, in skyscrapers and just what that's going to do in terms of social distancing, in terms of how can people get there in time for work and leaving. And so we'll perhaps have more forgiveness for uh, late night owls and not forcing them always to do the nine to five. And also just thinking about elevators, right? I mean, if there's going to be a limit on two to three people or, or less people in one elevator at a time, you know, maybe one positive output is that more people take the stairs. I don't know. As you, and as we both right. know, then that, that helps greatly with, with different health markers. Um, 
you know, coming back to, to my opening remarks about the office that we go back to will be very different from the office that we left behind. As people start to go back to the office in the next couple of months, um, you know, and, and, and many things will take time to settle down. Um, but have you got any ideas on, on how that will look like? I mean, you, of course, you have this whole aspect of, of densification, which was a trend whereby you know, there was more and more people in this kind of co-working space and, and innovation was often bubbling up from people, um, you know, rubbing shoulder to shoulder and, and eating together um, uh, in very positive working environments. I mean, will we go back to just kind of being more separated from from our workers we will be we'll be working in kind of offices of of perspex everywhere at least in the short term i mean what do you think is going to unfold over the next couple of months yeah absolutely so it depends on what kind of worker you are if we're assuming the conversations about the knowledge worker um that's very different than some of those that are frontline workers like security guards that are going back to buildings or your environmental cleaning crew. So those are probably two different conversations to have. I think that um, at least in the US, I think in Europe, I think we're gonna see this conversation of trust be critical. So do I trust my employers done what they said they were going to do? I kind of call this the 10% game, you know? This isn't like, okay, they figured out how to social distance and now we figured it out. Well, that's 10% of it. Right. Or what happens with, you know, protecting yourself in masks or if you're sick or diagnosing at home, that's another 10% of it. When we look at the building, a lot of this research is now emerging around the droplets versus aerosolization of the disease. This is critical when it comes to ventilation. If I'm talking asymptomatically for five minutes, there may be as many droplets as if someone sneezes. So that's a ventilation issue and that's an invisible issue for many people because we can't detect viral load in the air. So I now need to trust that my employer has increased ventilation standards. We definitely specialize in that area with well. Um, what about clean contact? So if I'm touching surfaces, we understand that the disease can live on surfaces for three, four hours. We don't know again the load in which we need or how active the virus is. Um, but that's the fomite conversation. Um, issues actually around fecal matter, so we're, tra we're tracing this. These are all vectors of disease. You need to be able to trust that the places that you are occupying in the building, whether it's the elevator, your shared workstation, or you know the facilities uh, have been taken care of. How do you trust mm -hmm. that, right? So is your building communicating for, you know, for our work in the well-building standard that they've pursued this, they're regularly cleaning, and that they're actually telling you how often are they doing this? There's another 10% and 10% and 10%. And you start adding this up and you then as an individual say, okay, I think they've done 90% of what they need to do. And I think I'm still vulnerable. I think that there's someone at home I'm taking care of. I'm pregnant. I'm immunocompromised. I'm going to then manage my risk of whether or not I return to work. Right? And so then that 10% is on them. I think you do need to have people be able to choose okay, here's the current situation, here's everything we're doing, do you trust us, have we communicated this in every way possible, and then allowing them to also choose whether or not they want to take that risk. But I really think these conversations need to be elevated beyond when people ask you, what's the future of work, what's the new normals, to say, dust for six feet away. That's such a small part of the bigger picture. And it's a small part of a really long timeline in which you're going to have to adjust to both what we can do now to prevent and prepare, but also what we're doing to mitigate 
increase resiliency and recover in our populations longer term. So I would encourage these are interactive plans, right, that we are taking into account multiple variables, multiple timelines to try to adjust to that. And I, I, I just want to emphasize again, the doom and gloom side of this conversation, there's also real potential. Why I love working with designers and architects and people that are really in this creative space is that those four walls that we talked about before that were the workplace, people are willing to resketch that. And the drawing looks a bit different now. And they're willing to think about this. And, you know, remember, we have a rich history of design taking... I think a really positive role in rethinking about how we can address problems. Yeah, no, fascinating. Thank you for that. And even the initial comments that you made, uh, Whitney, around emotions uh, and, and those 10%, it really shows us that this is a conversation also that will lead into aspects of company culture and also leadership, right? So it really then, I think, makes the building a real part of that company's DNA, right? And that, if we go back to previous comments that, that we had, is another factor in attracting talent, right? So now we're seeing that the, the, the four walls, the office space is becoming a real part of, of a company's success story, right? And their culture and their leadership. And hopefully that will then reinforce the, the, the healthy part of, of the building. Just to finish off here, um, thinking about what can we take if we are still in full quarantine mode, we're not going to get back to the office anytime soon, the next uh, few weeks or months. We're enjoying being at home. Is there anything from well or from your experience that we can use while we're working from home to maybe reduce stress or just, you know, be happier while we're in this situation? Sure. I think there's lots that we can do. Um, again, I encourage that it's actually been interesting. There's this model called stages of grief. And part of the first stage is denial, right? So this is just going to return to normal. I'll set up my computer at my dining room table and my kids will be off school for a week. And we're just going to figure this all out. And now you kind of see people shift into these stages of fear. They shift into stages of anger, right? This is not working. This model doesn't work. I'm sitting at the dining room table with my spouse in the background on a call while my kids are running around and the dog is yelling. Is not working. I'm frustrated. The goal and hope is that we move into the stage of acceptance where it feels like, okay, I can do this. And inside of that too are these opportunities to rethink about, all right, so I'm at home with total freedom to choose what to do during the day. I have to manage things in ways I never had managed before, but maybe there's also an opportunity to seek out some new patterns. You know, maybe I'm able to connect with my children or my spouse throughout the day versus one time of the day. Maybe I'm not traveling as extensively as I used to. Um, maybe I didn't want to wear heels, but I want to wear slippers. You know, maybe I want to eat at different times than what I was told to. Maybe I want to create healthy environments in ways that I didn't have a chance to do before because I was always on a plane or a train or a beige conference hall. So some things you can immediately do is I would say examine your own pattern and find control where you can. So create spaces where you feel like you can work best. And this does not always mean a home office. Um, there's a lot of different varieties of what people would say they work best in. We are not the same person from when we wake up to when we go to sleep. People have a pattern in the morning. They like to hyper-focus in one environment. That may shift. Take a look at that. Examine your patterns. 
you're no longer in the nine to five, or at least I think there's some variability. So if you work from six to 10, there's a lot of people that peak, they're the early birds, quite literally, their um, prefrontal cortex turns on a bit differently, cortisol response is on, they're really focused in the morning. Then there's the night owls, um, and maybe you can tell by this conversation that I'm an early bird. Um, but for a lot of us, our spouses and partners and friends are night owls. So they're going to start working from the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Check out your patterns and work with those patterns, I think. Look at issues around what you need in your space. So these are all the kind of 10% things you can do. Do you have natural light? If you don't, that's going to affect your sleep rhythms. Get out in the morning. Make sure that you are getting that light in the eye, right? Not the back of your head, but in the eye. You want to be exposed to light. Thinking about nature, fresh air and ventilation, crack your window. Um, this is a really big issue as people are also using a lot of different cleaning products in their space. And although that is good to disinfect, is that what it's not good at is that it can actually build you know, a VOC load that can be dangerous. So opening a window, cracking a window, um, is really important to help circulate the air a little bit to help you. Fantastic, thank you so much. For that Whitney, real valuable comments. Um, and I think it's for all, all of us to just embrace this time, right? Not to be fearful of it. Well, accept if there is fear, of course, but to embrace that empowerment that we all have. And then hopefully when we get beyond this time, and we will, then we will have that, that brighter future. So many, many thanks for your time today and wishing you the best and hoping that you keep safe and well over in New York. All the best, thank you.